Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a new release. I'm Scott Tobias, here this week with Tasha Robinson, Rachel Handler, Keith Phipps, and behind the scenes, producer Genevieve Kosky. We're all firm believers in the idea that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and how it relates to a current release. Tasha, tell us about this week's movie pairing. Just a year after winning the Best Picture Oscar for <laughs> Birdman, director Alejandro González Iñárritu is back with The Revenant, a half-revenge thriller, half-survival adventure set in the frosty American wilderness. The Revenant was photographed in remote mountain areas in Canada and Argentina using entirely natural light, and it was by all accounts a difficult production. But Iñárritu's commitment to shooting in extreme conditions is key to the film's visceral punch. It also recalls the work of cinema's most intrepid adventurer, Werner Herzog, particularly Aguirre, The Wrath of God, his 1972 cult classic about Spanish conquistadors in South America searching for El Dorado, the lost city of gold. Among other things, both The Revenant and Aguirre are about the arrogance of non-natives trying to exploit a foreign land, and both center on men who are pushed to the brink of madness and beyond. Scott, break down this week's discussion for us. Well, Tasha, in the first half, we'll focus on Aguirre, the Wrath of God, and the many elements that carry over into Inuritu's film, from its harsh natural setting, to its native and non-native characters, to the crazed, ambitious men who serve as its driving force. In the second half, dropping later this week, we'll bring The Revenant into the conversation in our forum discussion, talking about how Aguirre and The Revenant each deal with issues like madness and masculinity, and what sets them apart. And as always, we'll wrap things up with your next picture show, where we discuss some of our recent film-related experiences that should be on your radar. So let's all get our immunizations in order and follow these lunatics into the wild. Werner Herzog has spent a four-decade-plus career going back and forth between documentary films and features, always driven by an immense curiosity about the relationship between human beings and the natural world. He recently coined the phrase ecstatic truth to defend nonfiction films accused of not abiding impossible journalistic standards. But really, the line between Herzog's documentaries and features has always been a little blurry. In every film, he's trying to immerse himself in environments that interest him, and his fiction features each have the unmistakable imprint of their production. It may not have been necessary for Herzog to drag a 320-ton steamboat up a hill for Fitzgeraldo, but the effort shows on screen. For Aguirre, The Wrath of God, Herzog and his crew spent five weeks in the Amazon rainforest and trudged through the vines and across the river in a manner similar to the 16th-century adventurers on the hunt for El Dorado. Leading the charge is Herzog's chief collaborator and best fiend, Klaus Kinski, who stars as Aguirre, a treacherous man who starts as second-in-command on the expedition but eventually takes over through mutiny and death. 
As the mission grows more desperate, with heavily armored men falling to illness, starvation, and the arrows of native tribes, Kinski's tyrannical Agira presses on to the bitter end. The theme of man against nature has been a primary obsession of Herzog's throughout his career, and Agira the Wrath of God has long been a key example. There have been times when he's extended sympathy toward mad visionaries like Fitzcarraldo and Fitzcarraldo, or Timothy Treadwell and Grizzly Man, but with Agira, Herzog exposes the arrogance of white Europeans who believe the world easily conquered. In order to make one's way through nature, Herzog implies, you have to show some humility, and the image of armored conquistadors trudging through the Amazon shows anything but. Our land is already six times larger than Spain. And every day we drift makes it bigger. Have you seen any solid ground recently to support your weight? So, so gang, maybe the best place to start is a question I even have d- written down here. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I want to know, I want to know, uh, just generally, what what everyone thought of the film *Agira: The Wrath of God*. Uh, Tasha, let's uh, start with you. Oh, this is this is my second favorite Herzog after *Grizzly Man* um, in a walk. I mean, he's made so many fantastic films. But this was the one I remember so clearly the first time I saw it. And it was after I had seen uh, Fitzcarraldo and, you know, Burden of Dreams, which he didn't shoot, but, you know, which is key to understanding him. Mm-hmm. And probably uh, encounters at the end of the world. And I, I think I basically just went on a, a giant tear after Grizzly Man. And then I got to this one and it just stopped me dead. Uh, it has one of the most like that. The final sequence on the raft, which I won't spoil, mm-hmm. is for me one of the most memorable cinematic images of all time. I love this film for many, many reasons, which we'll get into. Yeah, I'll pick up where Tasha left off. I think it's bookended by just two of the most striking shots of of Herzog's career, uh, that ending sequence and that opening sequence, which we can talk about pretty openly, of of the the party that just seems to stretch off into infinity, uh, descending through the hills and up the hills. And and it's like they look so out of place. Like these European uh, uh, conquistadors, if that's even the right word, are in a place that's not. They're not meant to be. And it's just like the alienation from, from, from the natural world is there right from the beginning. And it goes, things start going wrong. In that first scene where the cannon falls and it just blows up and takes trees with it, it's just okay. Here's here's the movie in a few seconds, you know. And what what about you, Rachel? For me, I, I first saw this in college, and I I sort of after seeing the Revenant, I liked it even more because I really just didn't like the Revenant, and that sort of all the problems with the Revenant are not present in this movie. And I also forgot almost how funny it was. I, I mean, I know we'll talk about this a little later, but. I don't, I don't know if that I caught that when I was 18 and I mm-hmm. watched this. I, I laughed so much and I just thought, you know, I mean, now that Werner Herzog is sort of a character in and of himself to, to all of us, I think that's part of it too. But there was so much humor inherent in this movie that I didn't really notice the first time around. Yeah, that was my, that was the, the thing that resonated with me too this time is just how so poorly suited they, these people are, <laughs> literally suited for this situation <laughs> that, that, that the film really just almost is just a nudge away from being just an outright comedy. And I don't, I don't think I necessarily found the film funny in terms of I didn't I didn't laugh uh but but it is a situation where they're so out of out of water and just the sight of them dragging you know uh, what are those things called that the natives are, are carrying what oh, people, people sedan in carriages chair? sedan chair right exactly and through through heavy mud and it's just and, and everyone's got the armor on and you know then you can tell you know just by the texture of the film just how hot and awful this situation is and it's just you know there's to a point uh to an extent uh, Herzog is kind of uh, laughing a little bit behind the camera I feel like the humor is something you you probably just can't get on the first viewing because it's so dread soaked you know so much of the film is about anticipation we know it's going to go wrong you know these people are very clearly on a a one-way trip 
into oblivion. It's, you know, it's the basically the apocalypse now trip. We know that they're heading towards a city that doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, the, well, that, that's a different that's different than apocalypse now. At least then we know they're <laughs> it's heading actually towards a goal some, in right, mind. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, it's just this, you know, this this sticky, horrible, heavy, like dread soaked feeling. And the score really contributes to that. You don't know what's going to happen. So I feel like the first watch through is just is all about anticipation and, and tension and f- sort of fear for these people who are not very sympathetic people. You just don't know how bad it's going to get. And then when you come back to it, you can kind of see that, you know, Herzog is kind of making fun of their hubris. You know, mm-hmm. he is kind of saying <laughs> these people are out of their element because they walked into it and and possibly they deserve it. Right. That's that's what I mean. I wasn't laughing like, oh, no, what, sure. a, what a ripper on good time. <laughs> no. But like, you know, just sort of feeling Herzog's sort of contempt for these people was, was amusing to me. Yeah. Well, there's a black comedy of how badly things go from the start. I mean, it's it's sort of a, a de- the whole expedition is kind of made out of desperation to begin with. And then things fall apart very quickly from the mutiny to the declaration of an emperor. I mean, it, it is, you know, and, and I was wondering at what point insanity set in. I guess oh, it's yeah. the thing we'll, we'll, we can, we can uh, you know. I mean, I'll, I'll just spoil it by saying that my, my topic for the second segment is madness, and I think we can probably get into it there. But well, I'm, I'm right with you. I think one of the biggest questions in the film involves madness and when it sets in. Well, one thing I did want to talk about, you know, because I, I often talk about how things that happen outside the frame are not germane to any discussion of what happens within them. Extra textual, uh, as you call them. Yes, exactly. But I think it's fair to say uh, that the production history of Aguirre and the, and the Revenant, which we'll get into later, that plays a part in and just the, in what is there on the screen. So, how, how would you describe, I guess, the impact that this difficult shoot had on the finished product? Well, I mean, one thing that I think is really relevant is they're they're actually doing a lot of these things. You know, they actually had natives build them rafts, and they mm-hmm. actually did like sail down these ridiculous rapids. And when you see the the raft like going up and down and being almost submerged in this like brown murky violent water like you're actually (laughs) seeing a raft that people are standing on when you see them shove the horse off the side of the raft i mean they had no special effects they felt so bad for the horse oh i know it gets its leg caught on the way down and it it just it stumbles i mean when i rewatch the film now I can sort of see the the comic elements of what happens to the men, but I always feel like that horse is going to fall and break its leg. Like this is going to be the viewing on which that horse like <laughs> snaps a leg and dies. Oh, and it's the dangers there. <laughs> I don't think the Humane Society was uh, right. was on board. I mean, that, that's one thing actually as a like, side issue. Um, you know, Boonwell famously did that for Land Without Bread. Like, would he push push a push a sheep or a goat or something so, off yeah. a cliff? Um, yeah, I mean, there's you know, and I know this this film. Uh, uh, that I really love called Satan Tango. There's a cat that gets uh, you know tor- tortured a little bit, mm-hmm. but in any just case, a just a little bit, a little bit. Um, but, well, uh, I mean, this one actually starts with uh, there's a crate full of chickens that just they just kind of toss over a cliff to kind of show the precariousness of their situation coming down these these very steep stone stairs, and you, you know you can't see that box of chickens tumbling down the cliff and smashing over and over without thinking what the same thing would do to a man in armor. Yeah. I mean, you wonder also about it, it, about where that puts Herzog, morally speaking, because I mean, I, I think there's an element of sympathy in this film for the natives who being, you know, who are both trying to escort them on this journey and who are in these villages being attacked for whatever for no reason without provocation. But at the same time, I mean, for his for the production of this film, he's you know notoriously for the production of Fitzcarraldo, he's using uh, you know native help in, a, in probably a fairly dubious way. 
But he let the monkeys free. That's true. <laughs> the monkeys are unbelievable. <laughs> Did you guys read the Wikipedia page on the, the oh, film? Yeah. That whole story about the monkeys and Amazing. how he, he had to scam his way into getting those monkeys. Yeah. Did you read that? No. Oh, What's the story? He he actually he requested some trappers to get him a, a ton of monkeys for this final scene. And he like they caught him 400 monkeys. And he paid them half up front. So then they thought, oh, you know, let's get some extra money out of this. So uh, they took that money. And then they went and sold the monkeys to somebody in like Miami or you know somewhere in America and they were actually I believe at the airport they were going to be uh, shipped off like out of the country and he found out about it so Herzog went to the airport convinced these guys who I guess they'd never met him or talked to him uh-huh. I don't know but he, he convinced them he was a veterinarian and he <laughs> needed to take the monkeys and uh, give them vaccinations before they could be shipped to the US and then he loaded them up on his jeep and drove them away into the jungle <laughs> And then he shot his scenes, and then he just let him go in the jungle. Oh, wow! Wow! All right. Uh, I felt like we kind of lost lost. Well, the, the, yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> question had, the question had to do with the, the question. Basically, is how um, the production itself sort of made an imprint on the finished product. It's it's queasy to see. It's queasy making to see that, and, and no, you know, uh, there were no special effects, and and uh, you know, I, I'm Herzog seems like a nice enough guy, but I'm not sure that it was the best possible shooting conditions for everyone, or or that the the indigenous people were were not, ex, you know, what we would call. I think the word is exploited uh, <laughs> in a film. About about exploitation of, of indigenous people to, to some peaks. degree. I was a prince in this land, and my people had to look to the ground, and no one was allowed to look into my eyes. My people are enchained, just like me, and I must look to the ground. All of us have been made weaker. I cannot fight you, fight with yourselves. I'm very sorry for you, because there is no way out, and I'll never return to my home. It, it's it's uh, all rolled up in an uncomfortable ball there, isn't it? It is, though it has, I think, w- one of the aspects of it I, I like is um, that it has a sense of spontaneity to it. You know, as I was saying in the opening about ecstatic truth, I mean, that's kind of a principle that he put a name to recently, but that he sort of carried throughout his career. I mean, he's somebody who makes fiction films, makes documentaries, and then kind of mixes the two up. There are elements of fiction as documentaries, then there are elements of obvious ethnographic truth in his fiction films. And I think you can see that just so powerfully in the location shooting of this film and just the, the feeling that anything can happen. I don't, the, the film doesn't feel that mapped out. Even the, even the scripting of it is a little is choppy. It's a choppy film, and I don't mean that in, a, in, a, in a, to insult him necessarily, but it is not a smooth ride, narratively speaking. And I think think he's kind of giving up a little bit of that to see what he can capture in the moment. And even the camera work is very, uh, it's, you know, I mean, I guess it's handheld as you would describe it, or, or it's certainly not archly composed in any way. Right. I mean, Herzog, for all all the striking images that are in, in his films, he's not someone who lays out eight yards of uh, tracking for, for elaborate tracking shots where everyone has hit their marks. It's a little more spontaneous than that. No, but he, I mean, he also thinks things through, as we talked about the, those framing shots. You know, I mean, those are clearly very thought through and were, are critical to the film. But but I think once you get in, in into the middle of it, it, it seems like a lot of it is being done on the fly in a very kind of productive way. There's also like the the final shot, if I remember correctly, of the the film is very clearly was shot from a boat and is like just this very smooth, like panning circular shot, kind of taking in all the action. And that is one of the first times in the movie that really feels 
planned on a fundamental level in terms of where the camera is going to be and what it's going to be doing. Not just we'll put it on the raft and capture what it's like to go to the through the rapids. We'll put it up here and capture the perspective of like looking down over this this incredible cliff. But we need to actually capture all sides of this this angle and we need to communicate something through camera movement. We're going to have to actually plan this out. One thing we haven't touched on as far as what went on during the production and how it affected the film, though, is Herzog's famous famous relationship with uh, Kinski himself, mm-hmm. which like this film was really heavily covered in the documentary My Best Fiend in terms of Herzog's clashes with Kinski. There's a not very apocryphal story about the natives asking uh, Herzog if they wanted him, wanted them to kill Kinski for him because they <laughs> thought he was a demon. My Best Fiend is a a terrific movie uh, after you've watched a few Herzog-Kinski movies. If I remember correctly, the shooting of Agira is where we get that famous Herzog quote about how uh, the jungle is a symphony of murder. That's Fitzgerald. That's Fitzgerald. Is it Fitzgerald, though? That's a burden of dreams. Okay, fair enough. Uh, then I am completely but it apl- wrong. But it applies, though. Oh, it, I mean, it, it applies to everything he does. But yeah, from everything I've read, just the prepping of Kinski, the Kinski wanted to do the role as like a screaming madman, and Herzog want, wanted him to be like this whispering madman. So he would wind him up and like get him screaming and ranting, and then shoot once he'd exhausted himself. And I think you can feel that exhaustion on the screen. You can just the way he, he glowers throughout the entire movie. And I feel like he's glowering at Herzog as much as he's glowering at like the world and his madness. Well, that's one of the funny, I thought that was one of the funnier scenes where the uh, native is playing the flute and he's just sort of glaring at him murderously the entire time. <laughs> that made me actually laugh out loud. But so I, fa- I sort of fell into a bit of a Kinski rabbit hole and mm-hmm. I, I, th- I didn't know all this stuff about him. Like he is, his daughters accused him of sexual harassment when he was growing up and they they like totally just distanced themselves from him. And all. so at first I was like, oh, he's this comical, like crazy guy who pulled out a gun on Herzog and blah, blah, blah. And they have this crazy relationship. But there's all this really dark stuff out there about him too which i think is really interesting and another thing that i found sort of fascinating was the way that that herzog plays with the myth of kinski like he'll talk about it and then i read this interview with fandor from a year ago where he was like he's a difficult man he raved like a lunatic i threatened his life and then he's like but that shouldn't interest you only that what you see on screen should interest you ah, <laughs> yes scott feels so vindicated right now. like i was herzog. like but why did why have you been talking about this for 30 years then you know well i mean he made a documentary about it right, so you know right. he can't he can't be too like convinced that you shouldn't only care about what's well, on that's, screen. But that's the time to talk about it, right? Not when you're talking about it in the in the in uh, relation to any of the films they've collaborated on, right? <laughs> that just reads to me as someone who's tired of talking about it, though. Maybe that's. I mean, that's fair. Yeah, like decades later. What, so, what, what do you make of his performance? Because it doesn't really. It's not naturalistic, uh, <laughs> exactly, and it doesn't. It, it feels disconnected from the other performances, but in a way that is not against the film's goals. Exactly, you know, he does. He's supposed to stand out, right? I mean, he's a, he's a tyrant. He takes control of things, so it makes sense a little bit that he seems alien and and crazy and not communicative, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, he's. You know he's he's a madman, and 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 the uh, out of step performance in in the best possible way is is exactly what that part needed. I can't imagine anyone else playing that role. Yeah, for me, there's just there's a degree to which like I've seen Kinski and all of these in you know other Herzog films, but like in Fitzcarraldo especially, like 
he feels to me sometimes like a monkey in a suit. There's just there's a feeling that he's trying to play this character who believes in civilization and the civilized world. And for me, it doesn't always quite fit. Like the the crazy things that he does in that movie are like his true self leaking out. Here, this feels like the most Kinski role. You know, the, the, just the level of of madness and the level of like burning burning hatred that comes out at all times feels so much more like. Kinski, at least as Herzog portrayed him, uh, than any other role that he's had. I'm the great traitor. There must be no other. Anyone who even thinks about deserting this mission will be cut up into 98 pieces. Those pieces will be stamped on until what is left can be used only to paint walls. Whoever takes one grain of corn or one drop of water more than his ration will be locked up for 155 years. If I, Aguirre, want the birds to drop dead from the trees, then the birds will drop dead from the trees. And do you, th- do you ever get the impression that, he, does he really care about the goal, really? I mean, I, I mean he cares about uh, pressing on, and, uh, but, but I wonder if, he, if the thought the, of the dream that they're really following, if, the, if that's ever in his head. Because it, does, it doesn't seem that way to me, watching that performance um, or, or, or hearing the words he says. He's focused on being powerful, on godlike, but not necessarily uh, about what they're actually trying to, to accomplish. Well, I mean, he's an iconoclast. Like, he doesn't – it seems to me like he wouldn't actually be content to just make a lot of money and go home and buy a house with all of his money. Right. Like, his first action once he takes over is, like, <laughs> let's let's write a letter to the king and tell him that we, you know, depose him spiritually and that he should, you know, go jump into the sea. Like, the histrionicness of that letter, like, the, the overwhelming arrogance of that letter is way beyond we're going to go look for some money. Yeah, I mean, and also talking of arrogance to shift it a little bit, we we uh, haven't talked about the religious uh, mission of this trip as well, <laughs> oh, uh, which is which f- feels almost almost Cheney esque or something <laughs> uh, to to kind of just go and and uh, conquer and then expect everyone to uh, you know be on board with well in this case uh, you know Christianity. I'm not sure what the uh, what when you the, say Cheney esque, do you mean because we shoot him in the face? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. We shoot what works on many levels. Oh, right. Shoot the it, he, the mission the missionary. It's not a flattering picture of uh, of uh, religion in this in this movie. Yeah. I have one that sort of the when the, they fail to convert the the natives uh, instantly, they they kill them. Uh, there's also that really damning scene where Inez, where, where the priest tells her, you know. Traditionally, the church has been on the side of the powerful, you know, for God's sake. You know, <laughs> it's basically, I'm going to sell you out to this madman because he's the one with the gun. You know, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really something. Well, I think it's interesting that no one in this movie is really good or right. I mean, I'll talk about this a little more in the second segment, but that doesn't seem really to be outside of Inez and, and maybe Ursula, though that's kind of uh, ambiguous as well. It seems like they're all sort of making stupid choices based on the, the need for power, I think. Um, you know, even the slave talks about how when he was the a prince, he wouldn't let his people look upon him. And and even the priest is shady and greedy and obsessed with power. And, you know, everybody's sort of corrupted by power and greed in this movie. I think that was really interesting to me, too. There's no there's no like good guy, really. Well, it kind of punctures the myth, too, of explorers as being heroic. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, because because I, I think the, the, the ones who do make discoveries often do so through you know, a lot of really terrible uh, actions. So uh, the, the film really kind of lays into that idea. 
they're also just, you know, they're really disorganized in a not I mean, not just in the sense that the expedition is so badly run, but almost in an emotional way. Like for me, it all comes down to that scene when the two natives approach them and everybody notices that uh, the, the male is the husband, I guess, is wearing a little gold necklace and they rip it off his neck and are like, where did you get this? Where's the gold from? And he points and he's like he says something in his language that seems to be, oh, it's right over there. There's a huge pile of it. And they're like, shut up, take a Bible, die. Like, it's like they have no idea what they want from him. It's like they have no idea what they want from the country. And they just kind of try to shove like all of their violent impulses and like all of their frustrations at him at once. And then they immediately murder him for not knowing what to do with them. And it's like, that moment could have been whatever it is he's pointing to. Maybe he's certainly not pointing to El Dorado, but maybe he's pointing to a gold mine or a city that does have gold in it. You know, maybe he's pointing to the gold traders. We'll never know because they, they can't hold still long enough to actually parse the answer to the question they asked. Gold. Ask him where he got that. Ask him where El Dorado is. Where does this gold come from? Where did he say? Has this savage heard of our savior, Jesus Christ, and of our true mission to save their souls? And there's also the thing where they're not going to compromise themselves in any way to, to, for this new environment. There's the expectation, even when they're on a raft, that they're going to have some element, some amount of comfort. And these are the rafts have little thatch roofs, and uh, and as you said, you have the, the the sedan chairs. Sedan chairs is that, the, is that what we, we call them? You know, sedan chairs. Sedan chairs. God, one <laughs> of those things. We've all called. been in one. They they specifically call it a sedan chair. At least in the translation I watched, they say it like, "Oh, the sedan chairs tipping. Right. Oh, the sedan chairs in the mud." <laughs> right. It's like, well, maybe we shouldn't have one of those. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm going to say something that I I'm not sure I've ever said these words in this order before, but. What were women doing in this movie at all? Like, why did they bring uh, on this on this trip into the unknown, like with a bunch of like angry, ragged men? Why did they bring the leader's mistress? Why is she wearing lace and velvet? Why does Gera insist on bringing his daughter? Like they don't have the resources to take care of them. There's nothing for the two women to do on this trip. They're just they're caught in the middle of a dangerous situation, both from the environment and from the men around them, and they have nothing to contribute. I really felt like there was maybe something cultural going on there that that I wasn't grasping in terms of why anybody thought this was a good idea. I don't think. I mean, I don't think the idea was they're they're along to help. I think the idea was again they're they're going to bring their stuff mm-hmm. into this into this <laughs> right. into this territory, and that involves you know people of of a more elevated stature being treated as such, and 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 maybe and this is going to be an easy journey for them to the city of gold, which they'll occupy, you know, as they're as they're privileged to do. Um, so I think that's. I don't feel like there's any role. For them to play, other than to carry this one, this European civilization into the Amazon and you know set up shop. 
Well, he needs his daughter to create the ethnically pure race. <laughs> I think he doesn't get to that till the end, though. Yeah, that's a, I don't know if that's the, the original reason that she's No, alone, I know. But, but I, yeah. I mean, this is sort of a, my, my forum topic as well, why they're there. And I, I kind of feel like it's to throw the men's hubris into even sharper relief. Again, Inez is one of the only characters who talks any sense at all. So I feel like there's a little bit being said there about, about these men and, and sort of the, the woman who speaks up and everyone's like, shh, you're just confused. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then then the other does the, the penguin thing and encounters the end of the world just walks off into oblivion, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm gone mad and I'm just going to I'm just going to head off into the uh, jungle and uh, I'll never be heard from again. I'm not See, sure that, that that her odds are any worse right. though. It's, oh, it's like be killed it, by these crazy men or like maybe to let nature get at me. I think it's a I think it's a forfeit. <laughs> Pretty clearly, I don't. I don't know if she. I don't. I don't think it's. A, I don't think, based on her body language, that, that this is uh, some sort of survival tactic on her. Part. No, it's. I don't. I'm not saying it's survival. I'm just saying it's her way of picking a lesser evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe so. Um, oh, it's you know, a statement. And, right. You know, I mean, part of uh, you. You said that the men are all driven by like greed and selfishness, but they're also very much driven by fear. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, I think most of them are are driven by fear to go along with what's happening. They <laughs> that scene where they they vote for their new emperor that just consists of Agira just staring at each one of them until they capitulate <laughs> I think is really telling and I think her decision to walk into the forest is just her saying I'm not going along with your fear I'm not afraid mm-hmm. I'm making a choice for myself I agree yeah I think it's a it's a it's a very powerful moment too mm-hmm. Character. You don't want my. I, I, I maybe you all, you all have some favorite moments. You know, what my favorite Herzog moment in this film is is when they, is when one of the rafts is caught in an eddy. Like that is like a perfect hmm. like because it's not going. They are not going to survive. They are just going to go around and they're going to paddle and paddle and paddle and they're not going to get out of that situation and it's and it's going to end in death and it's just like a perfect Herzog image to me. This this uh, these these people um, who are just who are who are arrogant and stuck. And, and going around in circles and, 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 and doomed. Um, that's 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 kind of a favorite. I think the perfect Herzog image in this film is is the the rats on the raft, uh, how they're just carrying on like nursing their kids, they're nursing their baby rats or whatever, kind of oblivious to 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 the, the humans in their presence. Like this is this is going to pass, and the rats and all the other animals are going to be left when all these all these uh, silly humans have uh, passed through. Oh, for a second, I would—I thought you were talking about the monkeys, and I'm like, does he not realize they're monkeys? No, uh, it, it's a mouse. Oh, it's a mouse. Yeah. Okay, it's a big mouse, though. Uh, It's—I believe it's just a like a South American mouse. Okay. Like it, it the coloration mouse of rat. it through me. <laughs> like I'm speaking as somebody who bred mice and rats for a long time, in part to feed a snake. But okay. uh, wow. I, just, I wish you hadn't Let's said. I, I wish that. you hadn't said to feed a snake. I just wanted—I just wanted to see your your rat breeding. Uh, I'm mostly you, happy that I'm being shown up by a, a, a mouse and rat. Rat expert, and right. not <laughs> just, just scholar, <laughs> just some casual like rat information. Uh, yeah, no, it, it threw me for a moment, but yeah, that is that's a really uh, cool interpretation because I did kind of wonder what that scene was about. Given that everybody's starving at that point, I really kept expecting somebody to just like grab it and eat it. So, so what are some of I guess the Herzogian themes uh, at play in a era? <laughs> One of the big ones is nature is going to kill you. Yeah. And it and it does not care. You know, he's he's really big into this message of like na- nature is this uh, uncaring and violent void that swallows everything that comes into it, like without mercy and with generally without noticing. And uh, you certainly see that a lot of that here. But I, I think more than anything, like 
all of his films, and it took me a while to realize this, and I was really delighted when I did, all of his films are fundamentally about some kind of human ambition. Maybe mm-hmm. it's crazy outsized human ambition that pe- get people killed. Maybe it's beautiful ambition that leads to people to create something or experiencing something or drive themselves to something that nobody has before. Maybe it's just the ambition to study things and to learn on a level that nobody has before. But what he really loves is just these outside stories of human outsiders, basically, who Mm -hmm. go like above and beyond any sort of normal realm of man. Well, I mean, one distinction I think is worth making, which I think I made in the intro, is that the character's approach to nature counts. You know, I mean, nature isn't necessarily going to destroy you if you approach it with humility and with rationality and with kind of a clear idea of what uh, of what it is, you know, and, and this is the opposite of that. I mean, these are, these are characters who, who, who are conquerors. They have no respect for the land, for the people, for the situation that they're in. And, and, and they pay the consequences for that because nature is kind of nature is nature and it's going to, it's going to do what it's going to do. And if you don't, if you don't respect it, if you feel like you can, you, you have the upper hand, uh, and you approach it with, with, with arrogance, um, then that's when you get into trouble. You know, somebody like Timothy Treadwell, and Grizzly Man is a little bit more, kind of both, a little of both. I mean, somebody who is fatally naive, but at the same time is able to function in, in the wild in a way that that, the, that it does have a certain amount of respect um, for for nature that none of the characters in in this film share. With that transient, insightful point, I think <laughs> I think we're done with the first half of this segment. And before closing out uh, the first half of this week's show, we wanted to hear from you, our listeners. So what's our first email? Well, we got a lot of good feedback for our Toy Story Good Dinosaur episode, so I'd like to start with an email we got from John Hagen. John writes, To me, Toy Story is a movie about growing up, both for the human characters in the movie as well as the toy characters. The mother is learning how to live without her husband, the kids are learning how to live in the world as teens and eventual adults, and the toys are learning how to become independent and self-actualized. As someone who also saw this as a preteen, the reason I cried at the end of Toy Story 3 was because, at that moment, the toys had lost their parent figure. To me, this was a symbol for how, at some point in our lives, we must sacrifice the only family we've ever known to become a part of another family. We know the toys will never forget Andy, but they also know that it's now their responsibility to be there for someone who needs them more than Andy possibly could. It's a story of growing up, of how our lives change and how we never stop being ourselves, but at times we have to stop being the person that we once were. It's a nice letter, isn't it, Tasha? Oh, yeah. That's both sweet and appropriate. But it's also a little melancholy. Um, Here's another email that takes uh, maybe a more, I don't want to say positive, but uh, like a more upbeat approach from Jonathan Franco, who says, uh, Scott mentioned a few times that Toy Story is refreshing among Pixar's filmography because it has honest-to-goodness jokes and because its overlying emotion is joy rather than sadness. And it's for that same reason that Toy Story remains my favorite Pixar movie. Toy Story is an ode to the carefree wonders of childhood imagination, and so it's appropriate that the movie itself feels like a breezy, small-town, funny, fun adventure. It's a movie that Andy, and maybe even Sid, would watch as a kid and think, that was awesome, rather than saying, will the tears ever stop? To me, Toy Story speaks just as eloquently as its sequels do about that fleeting sense of childhood innocence and simplicity. Woody's speech about how much more a toy matters to a child than any real space man ever could sums up the central theme of the entire franchise. But unlike the sequels, Toy Story gets this message across while practicing what it preaches, by maintaining the feeling of a lighthearted romp for the entire movie. 
People often count its lightheartedness against Toy Story, at least when they're comparing it to other Pixar films, but I think it's what makes it special. I don't mean to knock Pixar's more weepy movies, many of which are some of the best movies of the past two decades, but rather the tendency some people seem to have to measure a Pixar movie's value by its weight and tears. Cars and Monsters University suffer a similar undervaluing, and I suspect for the same reasons. Personally, I find it a joy when Pixar is able to take it easy and tell a simpler story without sacrificing any of the emotional complexity that is its hallmark. I find that really interesting, uh, personally, uh, just because so much of the reaction to The Good Dinosaur in particular has been about, like, its lack of emotional complexity and the fact that it is a simpler story. So I kind of wonder what Jonathan thinks about that. But that's a really interesting letter, and and it stands in really strong contrast to Keith's. Okay, great. We appreciate all your feedback, and we'd love to hear more from you about this and future episodes. To share your thoughts about Agira, the Wrath of God, The Revenant, or both, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode. That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. On the second half of this week's conversation, which drops Thursday, we'll launch our forum talking over the many ways Agira, the Wrath of God, and the Revenant relate, and don't, and possibly get into a fight over who is and isn't a pretentious fraud. It'll be out in a few days, and you'll get to hear this. Stop getting Birdman all over my Revenant. (laughs) (laughs) So look for that later in the week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes, and follow us on Twitter at NextPicturePod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember... If I want the birds to drop dead from the trees, the birds will drop dead from the trees. I am the wrath of God. <laughs>